let me give you a brief introduction of how this book came about, The Indian Conservative. Uh, I have been associated with this new university called Ashoka University in Haryana, which is about, I think, five, six years old, uh, for some years right from its beginning, although my association now is a little less. Um, I was talking to Rudrangshu Mukherjee, the then vice chancellor, the current chancellor, and I said, you know, probable problem with you guys is you have become a leftist den, that your students only get to listen to Marxist and uh, postmodernist uh, professors, especially in the humanities and liberal arts and social sciences. They don't get the alternate point of view. So he said, why don't you come and give us a series of lectures on the alternate point of view? So I did that. He liked my lectures so much and he knew Chiki Sarkar, the publisher and founder of a company called Juggernaut. So he called her up and he said, hey, listen, why don't you take a look at converting this set of lectures into a book? So that is pretty much what has happened. I worked on converting and I worked with a very fine editor that Chiki put me in touch with, Nandini Mehta, and we converted the set of lectures into a book, which we called The Indian Conservative. The principal purpose of this book is to give students in Indian universities and NRI students in American and European universities and students in American and European universities who may not be of Indian origin, but who are studying about India, a different point of view, because the only point of view today they are given is a Marxist or postmodern or Freudian uh, points of view, all of which, in my opinion, are um, fatally misconceived points of view. So that's the purpose. Uh, the general argument that I am making is that while, let's start with political conservatism as a starting point. I will come to cultural and social and aesthetic conservatism. Subsequently, it's all covered in the book. While generally we agree that political conservatism as we know it is a 300 year largely Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American intellectual current. Traditionally, we all associate it as starting with Adam Smith and Edmund Burke. Um, on the economic side, Smith and on the political side, Burke, and they were actually good friends. And when Smith's theory of moral sentiments was published, Burke reviewed it favorably uh, and wrote a very nice positive review of the book. So we generally date it from there. And it is, although we do acknowledge Hobbes and Locke as predecessors, uh, in this way of thinking, 
And we acknowledge that it is not a continental thing. Germans and French tend not to be conservatives. They tend to be radicals. They tend to be of different persuasions. And on the other side of the Atlantic, we associate the Federalist Papers, Hamilton, Madison, Jay, a little bit of Jefferson, but really Hamilton, Madison, Jay, with it. And then there is a continuing stream in England down through Peel and Israeli, uh, down to Margaret Thatcher and Roger Scruton. Um, and uh, similarly on the American side, there is a continuing tradition of conservatism. We, I am not disputing this. I am acknowledging this. What I am saying is that Indian conservatism need not be simply seen as imitation Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American conservatism. We have a tradition of conservatism which goes back to remote antiquity, not 300 years, but 2000 years. And the two texts that I cite are the Shanti Parva of the Mahabharata and the Tirukkural of Tiruvalluvar. And I refer to these as foundational texts of Indian civilization, Indian culture, Indian society. I call them foundational. And their concern with the Purusharthas, Artha, which is economic and political pursuits, which is called Porul in Tamil, Dharma, which is a pursuit of virtue and ethics, which is called Aram in Tamil, Kama, which is a pursuit of passion and beauty, which is called Kamam or Inbam in Tamil, and Moksha, which is the fourth, which is supposed to be the highest of these four values, which is the pursuit of salvation. But strangely enough, both the Shanti Parva and the Kural are quite coy and quite clever in basically saying you focus on the first three, Moksha will automatically take care of itself. So that's the interesting thing. So the idea that Indians are otherworldly, only interested in salvation, not interested in this world is simply not true. And this is a very much a focused political philosophy uh, or a total humanistic philosophy, which has linkages to Locke and Hobbes and Burke and Smith. So what I am arguing that there is a great deal of synchronicity in human affairs across time and across space. And that's why you see these similarities and you see this uh, uh, thing resonating. I also make reference to the Apastas Sambhasutra of the Ajurveda, where the concept of Yuga Dharma is first enunciated, which basically argues that every age, every epoch, has its own dharma. 
And this is important for conservatives. It is important when you look at Burke. And today when you have all these arguments about pulling down statues, it is important to look at it from that perspective. Yuga Dharma basically says what is true and what is correct and ethical and virtuous and proper for one age need not be for another age. So it is true, St. Paul wrote a letter advising slaves to be obedient and to be hardworking and to be peaceful. Although there is some dispute, maybe Paul didn't write it, but it's included in the, in the New Testament at this point in time. That doesn't mean that today one should support slavery. The, the, the thing is, these ideas evolve. They change. And I think the people who capture it best is Burke himself, who says, we have to preserve good things and conserve them. And Disraeli, who says conservatism doesn't mean preserving the best of the past. It means uh, the, the worst of the past. It means preserving the best of the past. So, I mean, I think this idea has been captured that conservatism doesn't mean no change. Conservatism means that in the process of change, you don't want to destroy the good that your ancestors have given you. So there is no point in having a revolution and destroying all the great buildings that exist because those are good buildings as buildings go. And that's why conservatives don't like either the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution because they were dis destructive forces rather than destructive movements, rather than constructive movements uh, building on themselves. In fact, this is something that Indians have, have always, the best conservative Indians have always understood. You know, if you think about somebody like R.G. Bhandarkar, he's very particular about this. We have to change. We have to stop untouchability. We have to educate the lower castes. Uh, we have to create solidarity across caste groups. But we have to do it, A, non-violently, because violence will destroy good things. And two, we also have to preserve the good things of our past. So that, that, that whole thing is very, and Burke's classic, as you know, book, classic book is, or pamphlet really, it's not a long book, was his Reflections on the French Revolution, where he brought up this point that this guillotine and killing people and reign of terror and all this uh, of the French Revolution is a, just a terrible thing. And it's going to destroy the good things of French history, of French culture. And he was right. And by the way, Burke predicted that sooner or later, a military strongman is going to take over. And that's what happened when Napoleon took over. So not only was he correct, he was also prescient uh, and prophetic when he wrote that. Um, so in the political sphere, on the one hand, I think the Apasthamba Sutra, the Tirukkural and the Shanti Parva give deep intellectual traditions to conservatism in India. 
Chanakya Kautilya is a little interesting. I would consult, uh, uh, count him as a little bit of a conservative, although he's, he also has some radical tendencies. But he was, he was certainly not in favor of a nanny state. And he, he was very distrustful of bureaucracies. Now, radicals always like a nanny state. In the French Revolution, the state would tell you how to behave. In the Russian Revolution, the state would tell you how to live. They liked that. And so did Ashoka when he sent all his moral fellows to police, to police uh, his, uh, his subjects. Uh, Chanakya was opposed to that. Uh, he was for a slim state, and which is what conservatives like, which is going back uh, to Hobbes. We know that we need civilization. We know that we need a state. But we also know from Locke and from Burke that we need a very, very, very gentle state, not one that is intrusive because we want individuals to flourish. We're also very, very knowledgeable of the fact or very sensitive, cognizant of the fact that non-state, non, the monarch is always somebody we, we are suspicious of. But we like clubs, we like associations, Sangeeta Sabhas, Bhajan Mandalis, you know, civic associations which are voluntary. And we think these intermediating civic institutions between the monarch and the citizens are very important and we are great supporters of that. The, the reason we, we think these are important is because we believe these are natural and organic. People go to a temple naturally, organically. You know, they have a village deity, they have a, a deity in their state. I mean, it's a, it's, they, these, are, these are organic things, community traditions. Uh, Scruton, the greatest conservative who just died a few months back, was very fond of uh, Church of England music and hymns and playing the organ. You know, the, the, these traditions are important for conservatives. Um, the modern Indian political conservatism, I'm arguing, starts with two interesting people. One is Raja Ram Mohan Roy. And it's interesting because modern Indian conservatism, one of the problems we all have is the way currently NCERT and these dysfunctional and fairly idiotic bodies write history is that they make it sound that anybody who supported British rule directly or indirectly was a bad person, which is absurd. Ramon Roy was a great supporter of British rule. <clears throat> he told the visiting French aristocrat that I want British rule to continue in India for a long time so that we can learn a lot. It's not that he was not a patriotic Indian. He was a great scholar of Sanskrit and Bengali and Persian and whatnot. But he saw British rule as a positive impact in the long and checkered and complex and tortured and tortuous history of our country. And in fact, 
the common Bengali view at that time was British rule liberated the Bengali Hindu from the um, harsh rule of the Muslim Nawab. This was fairly commonly discussed among the Badrulok. It was not even a matter of argument. It was just accepted as truth. So there were different ways of looking at British rule. And the idea that the Indo-British encounter was a fortuitous one and a positive one for us actually came to the surface about 50 years after Ramon Roy in Bankim Chandra Chatterjee's Anandamat. Basically, the goddess tells the monks at the end of Anandamat, I have sent the British to rule you people in order to create a renaissance and a regeneration in India. This is part of my cosmic karmic plan. So, Bankim also saw British rule as a fortuitous, positive thing for India. These two people, in my opinion, Ram Mohan and Bankim, are the two nodes of Indian conservatism. Ram Mohan is probably your traditional Burkean conservatism. Not in any hurry to have revolutionary radical change, believed in slow constitutional change. How do you abolish Sati? You write a letter to the Governor General. You send a representation. A committee of people passes a resolution. Very constitutional, very Burkean, very Disraelian, very slow, very studied. No revolution, no radicalism, no stone throwing, no violence. But you do change and you drop that which is bad in the past and you keep that which is good. And the conservatives play what I call is the Ram Mohan trick. In my book, I have referred to it as a Ram Mohan trick. The Ram Mohan trick is very simple. Ah, you are defending Sati, you claim you are conservative. What I will do is I will say, no, 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 in the older texts, in the ancient texts, Sati is not sanctioned. So I go back two generations, five generations, ten generations in my choice of texts and play that trick to say it is in fact a conservative decision to drop something. So this is called the Ramon trick and it's a very common trick used by conservatives around the world. Bankim, I believe, was the father of what I call Hindu nationalism, which is the other school of Indian conservatism. Bankim saw British rule as a, a catalyst for a Hindu renaissance, for a Hindu liberation. Uh, and he was interested in Shivaji, you know, Turgesh Nandini, the kind of books he wrote uh, were all about, you know, uh, that kind, uh, very conscious imitation of Walter Scott, some people would argue, in terms of the way he created historical romance. And just like uh, Scott imagined the idea of Scotland, Bunkin imagined the idea of Hindu India. So these two schools have come down all the way from Ram Mohan Roy through 
Bandarkar, all the way down to Rajagopalachari and Masani in the Burkean school. From Bankim, all the way down to Dindayal in the Hindu nationalist school. And these are both, in my opinion, although many people, I think, wrongly criticize the Hindu nationalist school uh, as being radical and not conservative, I disagree. There are radical elements there, but in general, it is a conservative school. And I believe it is a legitimate school worthy of intellectual study. There are overlaps with the Burkeans Ram Mohan school and there are differences, but they are both conservative schools in Indian politics. The question then arises is how did this political thing come down? And the big drama in Indian politics from 1900 to 1920, before the advent of Gandhi, was really the, the drama between what are called moderates and extremists. The moderate leader was Gokhale, and I argue that Gokhale was a conservative. And my good friend Ram Guha gave me some pushback, saying, hey, wait a minute, you're just using the word conservative. wasn't Gokhale a liberal. And so then I've spent a lot of time in my book trying to explain the difference between conservative and liberal. I think it goes back to the origins. Liberalism is a French doctrine coming from Rousseau. The liberals saw primitive society as idyllic, as good, the noble savage, and they saw civilization as bad, as imprisoning the noble savage. Whereas the conservatives never bought into this. We go back to Hobbes and we see primitivism as bad and civilization as a very gentle, fragile structure that has in fact taken the brutish savage and made him a civilized person. Brutish is Hobbes's word. So this goes back right to our foundations. And the reason I'm saying that Gokhale is conservative is quite simply, he believed in constitutional change. He believed in slow change. He believed in nonviolent change. He did not want to drop the past. He wanted to improve the past. It's in fact the radicals who wanted Immediate freedom, get rid of the British, let's fight, violence. Gokhale was totally opposed to that. I think I've argued in the book, one reason these people started getting called liberals has nothing to do with us. It has something to do with Britain and the stupidities of the British upper classes. Just like as in the 1770s, the British Tories under Lord North and George III disagreed with Burke and opposed the colonies. Actually, the colonists were quite conservative. They had been given a charter by the British sovereign to set up colonies in Massachusetts and New York and Vermont. And they told the sovereign, don't violate the charter. 
and George III and Lord North wanted to violate the charter that they had. And the colonists were trying to recreate Magna Carta in the 13 colonies. The radical then actually, in my opinion, was George III and Lord North. Something similar happened when Adadabai Navroji or a Gokhale went to England. The stupid British Tories, conservatives, because they had this racialist doctrine, did not take these moderate leaders seriously. Gokhale would only get an audience with the liberals in England. Navroji would only got to get a parliamentary ticket from the liberals in England. So our conservatives started getting classified as liberals, but they really were not. They were conservatives in my opinion. And this tradition comes down all the way to Rajagopalachari. Interestingly, in 1942, he opposed the Quit India movement. He was against launching a violent or a movement that could become violent uh, in the middle of a war. Um, and later on, of course, he was against the extension of the state power that Nehru wanted to do and he formed the Swatantra Party. So there is this tradition. On the Hindu nationalist side, and they, the problem with most of these Marxist and postmodernist scholars is they just dismiss them as fascists and so on. That is rubbish. They have to be taken seriously. It's a very important intellectual tradition and it has to be talked about quite seriously. And I think the important thinkers there I find one of the most interesting thinkers is Lajpat Rai. Lajpat Rai was for a Hindu unity across castes, across languages, across ethnicities. And it was a recurring theme with him, to some extent with Malavya, but definitely with Lajpat Rai. And it came down through Sham Prasad. Sham Prasad was very similar to Rajagopalachari. He opposed Japanese fascism and in 1942 it was quite clear that if the Japanese invaded, we should fight and resist the Japanese. And he was very much a supporter of the British war effort. So these were conservatives who come down into modern India, the Swatantra school coming down from Ram Mohan Roy, and the Sham Prasad school coming down from, and Deen Dayal school coming down from Bankim, and it's continued. Swatantra died, and we'll talk about that, how Swatantra disappeared. And S.V. Raju, who was a secretary of the Swatantra party for many years, before he died in the last two years, he became fairly active in the BJP. So this is when I talk about what does one do if you are a Burkean conservative? If you are an erstwhile Swatantra party supporter, what do you do? You go back to the 50s and there was a brilliant Indian political scientist called Rajni Kothari. Rajni Kothari argued that in a one-party dominant democracy, 
what you do or in a party dominant democracy the other forces you set up fifth column is agents so even when nehru was running a socialist party there was swatantra agents inside nehru's party trying to prevent him from going to socialists there were communist agents like krishna menon trying to take him in the communist direction there were hindu agents like k m munshi trying to make him not be so uh, aggressively uh, secular so there were what you do is you influence you create coalitions you create lobbying groups within the party so today if you are a swatantra party supporter in india of the erstwhile swatantra party what you should be doing is encouraging manmohan singh inside congress encouraging those people inside bjp who are for growth low taxes deregulation for foreign investment not necessarily for swadeshi so you kind of play this very carefully by encouraging your coalitions inside those parties and i don't think we should give up even on the regional parties we should plant our people inside ncp admk dmk tmc because kalidal uh, all of them i think we should that is one strategy i have recommended for contemporary politics which was actually practiced in the 50s and 60s let's switch to economics in economics the two big economic historians of pre independence era were dalabai navroji and ramesh chandra dat both of the who wrote about the british empire and their basic objection to british imperial policy was that it was mercantilist it was crony capitalist they did not want state intervention they were not socialists they wanted a level playing field for indian businessmen and indian entrepreneurs and that tradition continued in free india with b r shanoi unfortunately shanoi was forced to leave the planning commission and malonobis and his bunch of leftists and marxists and crypto soviet people they took control of the economics of the country and the rest is history till 1950 60 india and uh, 50 we were probably ahead of korea certainly in 60 we were at the same level as korea today korea is uh, 15 times richer than us so we lost it there was a complete defeat in the economics area of conservative economists by the socialists by the soviet style status it is ironical because even you know malanobis was a very strange fellow he invited you know so many people lange and this fellow and that fellow all these strange socialists kaldor and all to come to india give advice and all their silly advice we tended to implement he also invited milton friedman of course he didn't listen to friedman's advice and the rest is history we remain one of the poorest countries in the world where all of our eastern neighbors have gotten ahead the swatantra party supported shanoi and the bombay school as it was called in preference to the school of delhi school of economics which was a 
profoundly leftist socialist Soviet school planning commission. They somehow thought they knew how to plan sitting in Delhi for the hundreds of millions of Indians all across. They didn't believe in pricing signals. They didn't believe in economic agents having agency. It was a terrible economic philosophy that they adopted. The Swatantra Party, in fact, Rajagopalachari coined the expression permit license Raj, saying that you're destroying the country. His opposition to the permit license system was twofold. One, it was inefficient. Because of it, we were not industrializing efficiently. We were not getting more prosperous. Chenoy's opposition was also it encouraged crony capitalism. Those who could bribe used to get the licenses and the others, good entrepreneurs, couldn't get them. The third one that Rajaji was worried about was the moral corruption. As a good conservative, he went back to Burke. And he said, you know, this is, he went to back to Tehullu. And he said, this is immoral. What you're doing. This is not what the sovereign is supposed to do. Telling people where to set up factories, how much to make, how much not to make. This is not the... He, he, Intrusion into trade, commerce, and industry and agriculture is not the sovereign's role. But nevertheless, the Swatantra Party did win some victories. They prevented collective farming from happening in India. I don't know how many of you are aware, aware, aware after the Avadi Congress, the Congress Party under all this Krishna Menon, Malavia, all these strange leftist fellows uh, with the encouragement of Panditji was moving towards collective farming a la the Soviet Union. So we would have had a repetition of Stalin's 1930s famine or Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward famine in India if that had gone ahead. There was, again, they had their agent inside the Congress party. Swatantra had an agent called Charan Singh. He opposed it from inside the Congress party. Swatantra opposed it from outside and they prevented Panditji from doing some really bizarre thing. I thank God he didn't do it. We'd have had millions of deaths in this country, deaths in this country, if collective farming had happened. So Swatantra did succeed at least in preventing the worst features of Stalinist planning. And Masani was a very important. Masani is interesting because he was a former socialist at London School of Econ Econ Economics. He started as a socialist, and like many people, like Arthur Kessler, Stephen Spender, George Orwell, he discovered the God that failed from within and became a conservative, became uh, somebody who believed in freedom and was, the, in fact, the founding president of the Swatantra Party, of which uh, Rajaji Rajagopalachari was the Amenon's Greece. The economic thing kind of changed a little bit in 91. And the, the very interesting thing, the entire economics profession in India became left-wing because you couldn't get jobs in Delhi School of Economics unless you were left-wing. You couldn't get promoted. Um, and otherwise you were, Lakhrawala, etc. were banished. You go to Pune, you go to Bombay and oh, the, the funding was very little there. Uh, the Pula School, Bombay School was given no, no importance. Shenoy was asked to leave Delhi. The But dissident voices started coming up. First was Srinivasan Bhagavati and 
Padma Desai, they went off to America because they couldn't survive in Delhi. And they started writing against statism and state planning. Strangely enough, Manmohan Singh wrote against export pessimism, saying you're unnecessarily keeping an overvalued rupee, listening to the Soviets, and you should be uh, encouraging exports and freeing up trade, not doing all this import substitution and, and crony capitalism. So different people came up. And essentially, the failure of the Indian economy in 91, and of course, by then also the Berlin Wall had collapsed and Soviet Union was no longer important, allowed for Indian economics to get a little bit of liberating breathing space and our present economists, you know, be it Subramanian, Brother Rajan, uh, be it Kaushik Basu, they're all kind of market friendly in some way. So the pendulum has tilted, but the interesting point I make in my book is that this is still not complete. There are still large residual elements of Stalinist economists in our country, in Delhi University, in JNU, in Jadavpur, in Jamia, in various places, in Kerala, in some Tirunantapuram school, in Madras, in some development institute. Uh, large elements of our bureaucracy, polit political apparatus, journalists, uh, academics, still have this fascination for statism, for welfareism. So our embrace of the market has not been uh, complete and there is a danger we can slide back, which is why that strategy that I mentioned of having our agents like Monte Kaluvalia, Manmohan Singh are our agents inside Congress to make sure that they don't listen to the leftists, you know, this uh, Harsh Mandar and, uh, and all these uh, 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 NAC people who advise Sonia. We need to keep doing that and same within the BJP. We need to make sure that Jetli, uh, Arun Shori, of course, unfortunately now has lost influence. But those, those, those people who are market friendly get, uh, get, get their, uh, this thing rather than statist, this intellectual descendants of Dathoban Tengadi and so on. So those, the, the, this is a very fine act because our embrace of the market is not. And by the way, conservative support of the market is not just about consequentials. It is not that markets are more efficient, markets work better, markets make people more prosperous and state planning and the sovereign deciding what to do. That is true. Markets do make us more prosperous. But it's moral. Markets are an expression of voluntary human activity. They're an expression of peaceful human activity. It is about negotiation, discussion, bargaining. It is about individual agency, willing buyers and willing sellers. The Indian bazaar, our mandis, our santes, our temple markets. It goes back a long time in our history. Uh, you know, be it uh, brooch in uh, uh, the West Coast or Pompuha uh, in the East Coast or Musiris. We've had trading, we've had port cities, we've had merchants, 
uh, and that is part and it's about peaceful activity violent people are what are people who are uh, attacking somebody else and stealing their money merchants are never buy because you're buying and selling and it's part so markets are about conservatism so there's a moral political thing to markets more than just economic consequentialism it is also true that markets make you richer most more prosperous than central planning but the danger with liberals that's what i'm saying liberals are dangerous people tomorrow if you can do some formula and prove to them alonobis can prove to them that uh, state planning will uh, create greater uh, uh, this thing for uh, uh, blacks or women or transgenders or any of the current fashionable uh, grievance mongering uh, uh, groups then they will say let's do central planning we will never say that we will say central planning is bad the sovereign interfering in the no tiruvannur is very clear for him the real hero was the plowman the lonely plowman he was the hero for him the king as uh, agents were were not the heroes the king is not supposed to tell me what i am supposed to do i am supposed to decide and by voluntary agreement you and i will trade will negotiate will bargain okay let me switch to the intellectual currents in culture in culture we really have a big problem the 19th century not so much the 18th century because the 18th century william jones and so on uh, princeps were much more open but 19th century particularly second half under the influence of uh, strong evangelical christian missionaries and so on the general view became that there is no such thing as indian culture and that is continued today in university of chicago in columbia in uh, berkeley in uh, soas in london and by jnu and uh, tiss and so on in india there is no indian culture india is only a geographic kind of expression is the way the british ics officers used to describe subaltern historical movement which has actually done some very good intellectual research they have become willy nilly the uh, allies of these people who argue there is no indian culture indian culture is just about various subaltern cultures various caste groups various ethnicities and it's about brahmanical sanskritic hegemony so they use this gramsci uh, you know these people have done so much damage to us gramsci foucault derrida they use all that language all that vocabulary to do some gross oversimplification of india now i strongly reject this i say first of all this dravidian nonsense came from caldwell who was a an english missionary in tirunelveli and i don't even think he meant it he used, casually in some tract he used the expression dravidian race and now that has acquired some big life of its own this aryan dravidian divide and this whole the fact of the matter is there is an indian culture it goes back a long time 
Yes, it has a strong Hindu flavor. What is wrong with that? Every country has the, the, the culture is the culture of the major has a flavor of its majority community. To say England won't have a culture steeped in Shakespeare, but it will have a culture steeped in uh, Cervantes is ridiculous. There's not that many Spanish-speaking people in England. Shakespeare was born in England. It's, it's, it is what it is about. So I, I think the fact that it has this Hindu thing, we don't need to get defensive about it. In any case, even this expression Hindu is so recent. goes back to the 1800s. Before that, you know, there's, it's not even clear. And is it a religion? Is it a culture? Depending on these arguments, you can go anywhere. But Indian culture is real. And I don't care if American academics don't like it, if ICS officers don't like it, Christian missionaries uh, wrote against it. In fact, some of the best Indian Christians like Anthony DeMello and so on are very much lovers of Indian culture. So this idea, just because uh, Caldwell said something, doesn't make it real. We, and it is, very much tied up to the sacred geography of India. I make this point again and again and again. Seven rivers, seven cities. And there is this constant creative tension between the universal and the local. He is the lord of the world, Jagan Natana, but he lives in Puri. So the local and the universe. He is the lord of the world, but he lives in Tirupati. You know, he is the lord of the world, but he lives in Rameshwar. He lives in Banaras. This, she is the, the, the queen of the world, but she lives in Danteshwari, in Jwalamukhi, in Madurai. So this, this business of universalism and localism is very much there. And this idea of a sacred geography, one of the great scholars of recent times is an American lady called Diana Eck. Sri has written about it. Of course, Radha Kumud Mukherjee, again, that is the whole stupidity of NCRT and our uh, current history teaching. Radha Kumud Mukherjee is not taught at all. Jayadunath Sarkar is not taught. Parasnes is not taught. I mean, uh, Surya, Surya Narayan Rao is not taught. Nilkant Shastri is not taught. Uh, the great historians uh, of the earlier era are not taught. Instead, you preach uh, uh, Marxists and uh, bogus postmodernists and pass them off as real history. We're doing our, our students a great disfavor. Anyway, we'll, that's one of my favorite topics. We'll come to that later. The, but Indian culture exists. It is Indian. It is Indic. It has a strong Hindu flavor. It is about sacred geography, but it is not restricted to Hindus. There is a Jain pilgrimage circuit. Shravana Belagola, Moodbidri, uh, um, uh, uh, Karkala, going all the way to Mount Abu, to Ranakpur, to uh, some place in Bihar and uh, Jharkhand. So, you know, it's a, it's a there's a Buddhist pilgrim circuit. There is a Sufi Muslim pilgrim circuit. One of my Sufi friends goes from Delhi to Ajmer, comes to Ahmedabad, comes to Bombay, goes to Gulbarga. Goes all the way south to Nagur, comes back to Kadapa, goes back to Bihar Sharif, comes back to Fatehpur Sakri, comes back to Delhi. So there is, by the way, India is the only country where there is a Sufi geographic pilgrimage circuit anywhere in the world. And so this, we are a sacred country. 
Indian culture is about sacredness. Basham is one of the few outsiders who has understood this. In his wonder uh, uh, that was India, in the last, right at the end in the epilogue, he says, go and look at the statue of Krishna Devaraya inside the Tirupati temple. The bronze statue, the king is static, standing with his hands folded. He says this is the ultimate about the Hindu ideal of the king in front of the transcendent, in front of the Lord, bowing and, and, and there is that royal majesty is doing, saluting the divine majesty. So we do believe in the transcendent reality. That way we are very close to Scruton, the great conservative philosopher in England who just died. This idea of this only material reality is just something we reject. There is a transcendental sacred reality and that is very much part of our tradition. It's not one tradition, it is multiple traditions. Masti Venkateshanga, the great Kannada writer calls it Bahuratna Vasundhara, the earth studded with many gems. That is what India is, whether it is Madurai or Danteshwari or uh, Jalamukhi um, or Vaishnodevi or Kamakya, I mean the goddess is there everywhere in the country. In fact, Richard Blurton talks about the fact that the very earth of India is nothing but the body of the goddess. Now, these are very strong, sacred images that permeate Indian culture. The other big disfavor that contemporary academics has done has been Freudians. This is Wendy Doniger and her disciples. And they're all scholars. They're very, very intellectually clever people, so it's difficult to deal with them, but they are wrong and they are, you know, they, they, they are using a 19th century Viennese uh, scholars uh, fake charlatan theories, because now we know that many of Freud's patients were people he made up. They were not even real people. Anyway, the, this Oedipus complex to say that Parvati-Ganesha relationship is Oedipal or Yashoda-Krishna relationship is incestuous. They're ridiculous. And this is not a liberty they would take with other religions. They just take it with Hinduism and they think they can get away with it. I'm not saying we should shut them up. I don't care. I'm for free speech. But we should counter them. You, you know, one fellow, one of Wendy's students has written a book saying Ramakrishna, a gay relationship with his disciples. Ridiculous and totally disrespectful and wrong. But anyway, so there is, the sacred is part of our culture. And I am very bullish on Indian culture. I think Indian culture has survived. And I make reference to the fact that it is still very much alive and kicking and continues as a living culture. It's not a museum culture. Large parts of Europe are at risk of becoming museum cultures. The only people who go there are tourists. I don't think that's true of India. People go, pilgrims go. Uh, in fact, pilgrimages have increased. So we are very much uh, a living, dynamic, great culture. The issue of aesthetics and education I have spent some time on. And uh, the real issue here is that uh, On a whole set of dimensions of aesthetic achievements, we are in great shape. 
Indian film. The reason Indian film is so successful is because it has stayed kept true to Indian culture. The very first movie we made was Raja Harishchandra. And our great movie stars are Inti Ramarao acting as Krishna, you know, uh, M.S. Subalakshmi acting as Meera. So we, we've kept faithful to Indian culture and our, our entire Bollywood dancing is all about keeping faithful to both Bharatanatyam and Terukut, both ends, folk dancing, Yakshagana and Manipuri, keeping uh, faithful to our traditions uh, uh, in the performing arts. Which is why, you know, it may sound kind of funny and uh, hero and hero and running around a tree, but I actually find it uh, quite good. I, I like it. Uh, and I certainly, when I look at Jolly Kepiche or uh, the the uh, Bollywood dancers, I see in them the vigor of Indian culture continuing. And we have given to the world a totally new art form called film music. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And but it is our contribution, Narshad or Salil Chaudhary or Vishwanathan Ramurthy or Rahman today or uh, uh, the uh, kinds of stuff we have been able to give to uh, and the singers Tata Mangeshkar, Mohammad Rafi, uh, P. Sushila, P.M. Sandarajan, the Gantashala, the way we have been able to uh, manade, the, make, make this uh, genre entirely our own. Raja, I mean, it's just amazing if you look at the names and the achievements and it's still not in. So I'm quite bullish and positive on these aspects of Indian aesthetics. I think we have let ourselves down uh, in architecture. Uh, again, the Stalinist socialist influence has been bad. Chandigarh is a terrible city. It's a Stalinist city. It's a totalitarian city. It has no tradition. There's no linkage with the past. And the other capitals, Gandhi, Nagar, Naya, Raipur, you know, they're simply not there. They're just not they don't have any oomph. They don't have any life. Bhuvaneshwar is a little better because Bhuvaneshwar has kept its uh, intricate relationship with Lingaraja, uh, Rajrani, etc. along with the new city quite well. So I like Bhuvaneshwar. But otherwise our public architecture, and I refer to it as PWD architecture, is pretty bad. And Indian private sector has also been quite bad. Bangalore is full of glass and steel buildings like Singapore, there's no expression, there is no, there's no, there's nothing. We've not, we've not been able to live up either to the standards of the order or even the standards of the Raj. And so many of the Raj buildings we have neglected only in the last 10, 15 years, VT station and so on, we are starting to uh, do something, uh, uh, Mayor College, we're starting to improve some of the Indo-Saracenic and Gothic legacies of the Raj. Because that is another interesting thing that I do mention. Because I, right in the beginning I had said, the government of free India, Ministry of Culture, Education, Foreign Affairs, they all made it that anybody who was pro-British was a traitor. Which is absurd. Ambedkar was on the Viceroy's Executive Council. Does it make him a traitor? Shamprasad Mukherjee was opposed to the Japanese invention, invasion. Does it make him a traitor? Rajagopal Achari was opposed to quit India. Does it make him a traitor? Uh, 
By the way, the Communist Party was supposed to quit India. No one talks about that. For the Communist Party up till August 1939 opposed British imperialism. From August 1939 to June 1941 supported Nazism. From June 1941 to 45 again opposed Nazism, you know and supported British imperialism. So they are playing all these kinds of games, but anybody, therefore, by the way, even this uh, war, Indian government never acknowledged the Indian participation in the First and Second World Wars. This new government has got some. So Swaraj went to Belgium and the Belgian king did a special uh, uh, thing, uh, for function for Indians who died in World War One. There's a monument. Narendra Modi went to Israel, went to Haifa, went to the cemetery where Indian soldiers are buried. Uh, they fought in the First World War, paid homage. Many of them, Hindu soldiers, Muslim soldiers, Sikh soldiers, and memorials are there. So it was no religious thing. It was Indians. And he went there. So we are beginning to slowly acknowledge. I mean, I think there's a newfound confidence that is coming. So we're willing to acknowledge the great buildings of the Raj and so on. Education has been bad. Education has been bad because we are following Dalhousie. Dalhousie said, let us set up Indian universities to prescribe syllabus, conduct exams, award degrees. And we are continuing to do that. And Dalhousie was quite clear that all new research will be done in Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, London. We have outsourced all new knowledge creation to universities there. Our best academics are there. And here we have created an examination-only culture. This is bad. And we have not given an autonomy, uh, whether a, a senior professor should travel business class or economy class is decided by a joint secretary sitting in Delhi, whether this book should be prescribed or not is decided by three different committees sitting in Delhi. So we've really strangled them. Radhakrishnan, Rabindranath Tagore, Madan Mohan Malavya, they had greater freedom under British rule to set up and run universities than, than any university vice chancellor has today. He can't even, I mean, C.V. Raman would not be appointed today as a professor. Ashutosh Mukherjee appointed him because he didn't have a PhD in physics and he didn't have 15 years experience as a lecturer and reader. UGC rules are quite clear. Without that, you can't be a professor. So today, C.V. Raman wouldn't be able to make it. So, I mean, we've created this very, but I think things will improve right now. Autonomy is being given, and I think over the next 15, 20 years, we might have one or two Nobel laureates in India, but it's going to take that long. It's not going to happen soon. I've spent a little bit of time talking about the BJP's rise and the most recent political stuff. And basically, I've said that uh, uh, the Congress failed to capitalize on the emerging middle class, which was actually created by Narasimha Rao. Uh, the BJP capitalized on it. I think the BJP also went back to the Lajpatrai, Bankim. In fact, if you listen to many of Narendra Modi's speeches, it's almost a verbatim uh, takeoff from Bankim. Uh, they went back to those traditions and they used the Ram Janmabhoomi movement very intelligently. Many of the people laying the foundation stones were uh, Dalits and lower castes. So have they been able to create cross-caste solidarity, uh, which uh, uh, was 
uh, Lajpat Rai's dream. Uh, and, and they've been able to do that. Uh, it's early days because they've now been power six, seven years. Uh, but then also they had a four, five year stint with Vajpayee. But clearly, uh, Hindu nationalism has made it, Swatantra has disappeared. Uh, so if you are a Swatantra supporter, your best bet is to try to, as I said, strengthen Amrinder Singh, Manmohan Singh inside Congress and strengthen those elements inside the BJP who, are, who will be for economic market access. And culturally, I think you're probably pretty much in sync with the BJP. So there's not much issue there. On the social side, I have seen conservatism operate the best in India. There has been gradual constitutional change. In 1955, Hindu Marriages Act, 1956, Hindu Succession Act. So gradual constitutional change. And today, women are going to, Muslim women are going to court saying, let us into the uh, Darga. So it's done, not revolutionary, not radical. It is gradual. It is constitutional. It is by debate. You know, it is by discussion and it is happening. Uh, uh, so the worst features of untouchability, of caste, of misogyny. And we have nothing to learn from the West in the area of LGBTQ issues. Because I've talked about that, Adhranayishwara, uh, these these ideas, uh, transgender near Vilupuram in uh, in uh, Tamil Nadu, there is a transgender temple where every year there is a great transgender festival. And my good friend, the sculptor Dilip uh, Kurvela, uh, George K, he has done some outstanding sculptures of the Aravanis. So I think on LGBTQ, we are probably socially ahead uh, of the West, and we have nothing to learn. Again, changes are happening. Um, uh, constitutionally, legally, a little slowly for the liking of some people, but quite okay for me. And I think socially, we are moving ahead. Uh, things are better and social change is happening without uh, the, the, the violence that happens in many other countries. Um, I am quite hopeful. I'm quite hopeful of all the religious groups. Uh, I think... Uh, even the Muslim group, I think you might find that India might be the home or, or, the, or, the, or the place from where, after all, Salman Rushdie at the end of the day calls himself an Indian. He might have been the beginning of some new thoughts in the, in, in the Muslim intellectual sphere. Uh, Javed Akhtar is an interesting intellectual. I think things will, will come out of there. I think the Christians, uh, by and large, the Syrian Christians are focused on political and professional achievements, uh, but the within the Catholic Church, certainly going back to De Nobili, the Italian 500 years ago, to uh, Anthony uh, De Mello uh, 20 years ago, uh, De Mello combined Vedanta and, and uh, 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 modern Christianity quite well. The church actually troubled him. They wanted to excommunicate him at some time, but finally they accepted him. So we've got, we've got enough intellectual ferment going on in all the groups um, that I find uh, quite, quite exciting uh, about, uh, about the way uh, the country is progressing. I think the Geo-Parsi movement, I hope it will work and the Parsis won't disappear, although that is a risk we've got and some of the great contributions that this small community has made to our country may, 
may, may go into the museum. I hope that doesn't happen. There'll be new Jewish communities found in the Northeast and Andhra. So, and there's a lot of Indo-Israel exchange. So I think even though a lot of the Ben Israelites and Cochin Jews have migrated, there's, there's enough uh, uh, activity happening there too. So anyway, net-net, I am quite, Buddhism. I mean, the Ambedkarite revival of Buddhism, I'm very positive about. And I think there's a new life there. And so now we have two new Buddhist holy sites, Nagpur and Bombay, not just Sarnath and Bodhgaya. So I think I, I am quite uh, excited about Navayana Buddhism. So I think the, that, the, all these areas are good. Economics, we still run the risk that we may uh, fall back into the trap of statism. So we have to defend the defenders of the market. And, but in education and intellectual trends is our greatest risk because North America, Europe, and a lot of Indian universities, the social sciences, liberal arts, and humanities departments are dominated by Marxist, postmodernist, structuralist, uh, postcolonialist, Freudians, and all this bunch of bogus fellows. I don't think the solution is for us to appoint somebody who believes that Rama went in a play. That would be a self-goal. We have to appoint a different set of academics who are also good. It's not going to be easy because these jokers have made sure in the last 30, 40 years, nobody has got a PhD who is not a Marxist or a postmodernist. So it's very difficult to find the right scholars, but we have to keep at it. And uh, I think over the next 10 years, we will make an impact there as conservatives. As usual, as an author, let me make a plug. Do buy the book. I need royalties. I'm a poor man. Uh, and I'm now open for questions and whatever you want. I have two questions. One, we uh, just before the uh, session started, I was asking you how did was your journey into conservative conservatism? If you could shed some light on that. My journey is something like this. I was a leftist in college. Um, sometime in the 70s, a boss of mine gave me a book by Connor Crowe's O'Brien on Edmund Burke. That changed my way of thinking. Influence of Tiruvallu and Mahabharata goes back to my grandfather's days. Even growing up, those stories stayed with me. But I pretty much abandoned leftism when I was in the US between 79 and 82. And then progressively moved uh, more and more to the conservative point of view. And I would say by the 90s, I was a full-fledged conservative. Uh, and I started writing a column for the Indian Express, which later became a book called Notes from an Indian Conservative. Uh, and uh, then I started lecturing and writing more and more about uh, uh, my, my, my point of view. Uh, and also, by the end of the 90s, I came back to live in India. I lived in India in the 80s again, went back again, and then came back again in the 90s. And then I started getting more and more immersed in Tamil, a little bit in Kannada, and a little bit in Sanskrit. Um, in the 80s, actually, I had spent some time learning some uh, Sanskrit chanting and so on. So I, I was able to reach into some of our traditions and doing a lot more reading. So that's been my journey into conservatism.
Thanks for a very nice talk and uh, it's uh, given some glimpse of my PhD days. Uh, I remember those days in, uh, in our system, there are students who used to do PhD in 10 or 12 years. And then faculties are supporting them, giving permission, extension, 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 so that they can remain in the campus, in the hostels, and they can spread their propaganda. So I found <laughs> most of my friends, they stayed nine, 10 years. And what they used to do, they are just brainwashing the youngest student. Oh, you are under torture and this, that. And then the same friend means I have personal experience, my two, three friends who has a very good relation up to the three, four years. And suddenly after that, they changed. So what do you think how to control this kind of things in academic poisoning? It's a very, very difficult problem. It started in America in the late 60s. In fact, you can almost date it to 68, the Berkeley riots. And they have now gained a control over academia. This fellow Venkat Dulipala, who wrote a brilliant book on the creation of Pakistan, he was not given a tenure track job in any history department in America. Uh, because the history in America is controlled by leftist Marxists, uh, Ayesha, whatever her name is, uh, she, she and her coterie. Religious studies, anthropological studies is controlled by Wendy Doniger and Sheldon Pollock. So, and their whole view is that all of Hinduism, all of Indian culture is about hegemonism, caste oppression. It's very tragic. Many of my NRI friends, their children go to very big Ivy League colleges and they will take a course on Indian sociology and the Marxist professor will basically tell them that the entire Hindu tradition is about hegemony and caste oppression and misogyny and these kids unfortunately buy into it. In India what happened was Indira Gandhi and Nurul Hassan, they felt that the Marxists might be a danger to Indian society. Indira Gandhi was a very clever lady. She said that the best way to stop a Paris or a Berkeley or even a Vietnam type revolt happening. She was quite scared. Uh, she wanted a strong India. She didn't want, uh, you know, India to go uh, the leftist way, which was a real possibility. Remember in 1967, Nakshal movement was at its height. And Maoism was very strong and people were quite scared. So she took these Marxists and created ICSSR, Jadavpur, JNU, etc. and locked them up there and said, you sit there, you have tea, coffee, biscuits, and you can take trips to Moscow and Leningrad occasionally. And you write stuff and you, as you said, have PhD students for 10, 12 years and you keep writing pamphlets, the two of you read, and I will tame you and make you into Paltu jobs. And fundamentally, Indira Gandhi and Nurul Hassan succeeded in that. JNU is a bunch of Paltu genres, so quite useless. But what I think Indira Gandhi didn't realize is the intellectual damage these people can do uh, by creating whole generations of scholars and scholarship and ways of thinking so that today entire Indian media, entire uh, IAS, because I asked a lot of them come from JNU. They're all dominated by people who think like this. So you, 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 she has left behind 
very strange legacy of, yes, taming the Marxists on the one hand, but also leaving this strange uh, um, legacy on the other. How do we combat this? We have to change it. First of all, one thing to do is to make JNU less important, make Jadavpur less important, cut off their money, which I think we are doing. The second thing is to make some rule changes. You can't be PhD student for more than two years, three years. Use, use the blunt instrument of the UGC, which otherwise I hate. But really the thing is to get our own academics. Can we get conservative scholars? Very difficult. There are so few of them. Um, today Sanjeev Sanyal won't get a job because he technically doesn't have a PhD. But he's one of the most outstanding historians that we have. So I think this is something we need to figure out. How to get in our academics in there so that we can start rewriting the academic agenda. It's not going to be easy. And they are not going to give up. JNU professors are going to fight back. Delhi University Lecturers Association is going to fight back. They are going to squeal. They are going to complain of fascism. They are going to complain of and lack of freedom of speech. And they have all their friends in the media and elsewhere. And they have their friends in America. Every two months, some 50 American academics will write a letter, open letter, supporting them. So they will do all that. But it has to be done taking back the intellectual um, positioning, the intellectual arguments. I'm not saying we should be the only ones. They can have their arguments, but we should also have enough conservative thinkers, enough Guriyas, uh, enough, uh, you know, Radha Kumud Mukherjee's, enough Jadunath Sarkar's, enough. Be we should not let them do to us what they did to Shanoi in the 50s, driving him away from Delhi, which is what they have done. It's tough. It's a long 10, 15 year battle. Battle has just started. Sir, uh, my first question is that in the beginning of your lecture, you talked about dharma and relates it with virtuousness. Sir, to be honest, I find these terminologies confusing because if we go back in the pages of history, we, fi we find that uh, even shastras were written on thieves. For example, Steya Shastra. So my question is, do you acknowledge hierarchy within dharma, considering that even thief has its own dharma? And how you figure out virtuousness if in case two dharmas come in, comes in conflict with each other? The problem is, as dharma moved from Sanskrit to the various prakrits and to upper Brahms and to modern, modern Hindi, it has acquired new connotations. Today, when you use the word dharam in Hindi, it does not refer to dharma as enunciated in the Shanti Parva. That is why many times I prefer the Tamil word Aram because Tamil, unlike Northern Indian languages, has preserved a relative purity today as it was 2000 years ago. So when we say Aram in Tamil, we know exactly what we mean. Uh, so this, yes, Dharma, the way there is a thieves Dharma, there is a prostitutes Dharma, etc. is a way of converting virtue into manuals uh, and that that is that is one 
trend that has happened. But that is not the dharma that I am referring to. I am referring to Raja dharma. I am referring to Apad dharma, Yoga dharma, ideas enunciated by Valluvar and by Vyasa in the Shanti Parva. Uh, and there essentially relates to Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. What does Adam Smith say? He says, look, there is an impartial spectator who is judging us. So this is pretty much what the world war says. There is a judgment of us, which frankly we make ourselves, but we make it from outside of us as we look at us. Urdundu Arvane Varvan Matralan Kaivogandha Pinsal He who tills the land, he is the only one who lives. The rest of us are camp followers with, our, with folded hands. What is he saying? If you don't work, you are not entitled to the fruits of work. He is justifying economic activity. The plowman is his hero. He is saying that economic activity is the basis of society. The rest of us are just camp followers. Now that is dharma, the way Valluvar looks at it. The way Vyasa looks at it in Shanti Parva is that there is something called Raja Dharma, which frankly echoes the Magna Carta. Again, I am not taking away from the great achievements of the Anglo-Saxons. Magna Carta is a great Anglo-Saxon achievement. But it was the first document, according to them, where the king had some restrictions. He could not do anything. He had to follow the law. But it is there in Shanti Parva. The king cannot do anything. And by the way, the biggest thing that they hate our ancients is Matsya Nyaya, the big fish eating the small fish. So your way of interpreting Dharma, which is a medieval Apabhramsha, modern Hindi, Khadiboli way of looking at Dharma, is, um, is, is something I don't accept. I would rather stick to the classical way. And if you don't like Dharma, because you have gotten accustomed to this misuse of that word, let us use Aram. Uh, and then that will bring you back to the original sacred uh, virtuous connotations of dharma. Sir, my next question is that you talked about Indian nationalists and you frequently mention a term uh, radical and try to make a distinction there. Sir, I wanted to know what do you precisely mean by radicals? And just to add a context to this point, I want you to uh, enlighten me. Uh, what do you prefer to call Gandhi? Keeping in mind his support for Islamic fascist idea of Khilafat during Khilafat movement and keeping in mind his approval to send Indian troops in First and Second World War, which caused millions of deaths of our soldiers. Well, I have got a whole section in my book on Gandhi and Abedkar. And my principal argument is these are giants. Anybody can claim them. Marxists can claim Gandhi. Liberals can claim. Radicals can claim. Conservatives can claim. It's a waste of time. It will just get us into semantic and useless arguments. Gandhi had certain conservative traits. He had some radical traits. 
but by and large on the important political issue of violent change versus non-violent change, Gandhi clearly was for non-violent change. Gandhi was against having a, another 1857. He preferred non-cooperation movements, Satyagraha. Gandhi didn't like Subhash Chandra Bose because I think correctly Gandhi suspected that Joe Bose would favor militarism, violence, would go and shake hands with Hitler and Tojo and Mussolini. And he got rid of him from the Congress party. But then in 1942, Gandhi did do quit India, which I think was a mistake. Uh, but he did it anyway. Uh, and you are making it out that sending Indian soldiers was a bad thing. I disagree. I think sending Indian soldiers in the First and Second World War was a good thing. Uh, we should have fought Hitler. If Hitler had won, British rule in India would have looked like a tea party compared to what he would have done. He would have closed down all colleges. He was quite clear. The lower races should not have education. We should all be just workers. And he would have had, you know, concentration camps, etc. We were an inferior race. That's what would have happened if Nazi Germany had became had become the rulers of India. So I think we did the right thing, sending soldiers, fighting it, uh, and we should take credit for it. Uh, so I, I I don't accept your position that people die. Now, as far as Khilafat is concerned. In, in retrospect, it was clearly a tactical mistake on Gandhi's part. I thought, I think he was trying to be too clever. He thought he could ride two horses. Uh, and I don't think, I, look, ultimately the issues of Muslims uh, anywhere and certainly Indian Muslims are issues they have to resolve. Gandhi cannot resolve Indian Muslim problems by giving them speeches saying you become peaceful. They have to decide. That is why in my book, I am actually quite, um, I praise Sir Syed Ahmed Khan a lot. He's a good conservative Muslim who liked British rule to continue, who wanted them to educate themselves, modernize themselves. It's a good, good way of looking at it. So uh, I think Khilafat was a mistake. And I think uh, we all know that. That's not a, you're not saying anything that people don't. So you started with, uh, or somewhere through the course of the talk, you said something very nice. Markets are moral. Now that's a fantastic uh, statement to make. I've sort of never heard that before. And uh, I haven't read Thomas Piketty, but this is a this concentration of wealth in a few hands is a constant common refrain that left liberals threw at conservatives or you know people like us all the time. Do you have a point to make on that? Piketty is another charlatan. Uh, you know you can always use selective statistics to prove anything. So according to Piketty in America over the last 30-40 years income inequalities have expanded, right? Which is true. I, I, you are from the IT industry, I am from the IT industry. We know for a fact that in 1990, 
1980, certainly when I was working in America, working on setting up a major computer program on a digital wax machine, this was 1982. The computer programmers were highly paid in America. By 2002, they are not that highly paid because Indian programmers are paid higher than they were getting paid in 82. So Piketty doesn't bother to do the entire gamut of wealth equality inequality. When there is great increase in global trade, the wages of a Chinese worker, wages of an Indian computer programmer will go up. The wages of an American blue collar worker, American computer programmer will come down. He doesn't. He only takes a look at the selective statistics that suit him to push a socialist agenda. What is the income inequality within America, within India? Now in India, obviously, when there are computer programmers who are computing, uh, competing for wages with American programmers, their wages grow up disproportionately and the Indian farm worker or construction worker, his wage won't go up disproportionately. Is this a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing because total wealth has gone up, total prosperity has gone up and frankly, the Indian farmer today is richer than he was 20 years ago. And whatever Piketty may say, let me put it this way. The poorest people in America today are better off than they were 20 years ago. They, they, they may not be as well off as Piketty would like them. And the difference between them and Dhiruba uh, Mukesh Ambani might have gone up too much. That doesn't mean anything. Let Ambani get richer as long as I am richer. So these are false arguments and these are bad use of statistics. They start with an agenda. They want state intervention to change your life and my life. They want the state to say, hey, you cannot make money. Hey, you make money. I don't want the state to say that. And Shanti Parva is quite clear. The king shouldn't say that. Magna Carta is clear. Hobbes is clear. Locke is clear. Adam Smith is clear. Burke is clear. We don't want the state telling us by imposing outrageous taxes, by uh, rapacious taxes, then we will just go away. By the way, in the old days, Whenever a king increased taxes too much, you know what happened? People would leave his kingdom and go to the next kingdom. I mean, the, Piketty is doing a lot and he's very fashionable. Uh, this business of, uh, uh, the, the, there are only two questions to be asked. One, is everyone better off than they were 10 years ago? The poorest man, is he better off than he was 10 years ago? Answer is yes. Two, are these differential, wage differentials across the world coming together? The answer is yes. Now tell me something. In America, the neurosurgeons' wages have gone up very high in the last 30 years as compared to the nurses. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? But the nurse today is making more. And particularly if you take it in terms of objects, how many cars could a nurse afford 30 years ago? Maybe half a car. Today she can buy two automobiles. So she's a rich person. Now, yes, neurosurgeons wages have gone up a lot, but that is the nature of skills 
that's the nature of the way uh, the society has evolved and that doesn't make it bad. Piketty doesn't want to deal with all those granular details. He takes some large statistics. And he, by the way, if he found any statistics that went against him, he'll just suppress it. He'll only present to you those that make his argument. My name is Kabir Pandit. Uh, I'm using my, my phone today, so sorry, my name is not appearing. Uh, I am also a consultant from the IT world, and I remember when emphasis was being set up, we lost a lot of colleagues to you. Uh, this was back in uh, the late 90s, I think. <laughs> I was with GE at the time. Uh, anyhow, uh, um, I'm also a writer. I contribute to Op India and uh, Organizer now. My question to you is, you, you've mentioned a few times uh, uh, us conservatives. Wouldn't that be a misnomer? Uh, as as uh, as the ones who believe now have transitioned, like people like me, have transitioned to uh, believing in our Indic values and uh, beliefs, uh, would that be conservative conservatism, uh, or would that be uh, you know uh, what's the word, uh, going back to your basics? Uh, because to me, uh, con a conservative would be somebody in a in a Western context would be somebody who lives by the biblical values, uh, by biblical values and so on. Whereas we, we don't do that. Uh, we, we're not a cult. Uh, in fact, we've, I feel that as a former liberal uh, leftist ideology person, I have liberated myself to, to be able to think more uh, and to be able to do more, uh, more widely. The first issue is important. What is the difference between a conservative and a revivalist? A revivalist goes back. He wants to revive the Gupta era. He wants to revive the Chola era, the Vijayanagar era. A conservative attaches equal respect to the Chola era and to the British period. He doesn't see the 200 years of British rule in India as a negative. He sees it as part of the history left behind some good things, some bad things, and our job is to retain the good things and abandon the bad things. So this is the basic difference between a conservative and a revivalist. Revivalist is like Nazi Germany. I want to go back and revive some, uh, you know, uh, Siegfried and Wotan. No, that is important. But Goethe and Schiller and Heine, Heine was a Jewish writer. By then, Jews had started writing in, in Germany. Why should Jewish writers be proscribed? They were part of the German literary tradition. Kafka, the greatest 20th century uh, German writer, was Jewish. I mean, I think this is a mistake. that the, This is the difference between conservatives and revivalists. The second issue that you were talking about. It's not true that Anglo-American conservatives want to live by the Bible. That is a very American popular TV definition of conservatives. Uh, because in America, again, just like the, the earlier fellow talked about dharma, the words conservative, liberal, etc. are used quite loosely. In America, church-going, southern, white evangelicals are considered conservative. But actually, you, would, you could argue that they are revivalists. In fact, there's a strong biblical revival tradition in America going back uh, 300 years. It's always been there. 
the i would say christopher hitchens is extraordinary love for the king's james uh, version of the english bible as a prose work as a literary work as that which has shaped the british psyche and imagination but today which is not taught in britain Con contemporary leftist academics they do not touch the bible they don't know how uh, the, the the great uh, uh, expressions that come from the bible i am not my brother's keeper uh, you know blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy verily verily i say unto thee each of these has got as the lord is my shepherd i shall not want these are resonant in british and english culture and they come from the james james version of the bible not from the original greek or hebrew or uh, aramaic bibles and that came only in the 1600s only 400 years ago but it's part so conservatives are for the continuity of tradition for me it is very important to understand radhakrishnan as an acharya he is an acharya he wrote uh, commentaries on the brahma sutras on the gita and all the maha upanishads he wrote them in english not in sanskrit that doesn't make him any less an acharya as far as i am concerned and it is this continuity in our tradition that conservatives value they are not for revivalism because revivalism says what happened between uh, 1200 and 1900 is bad or 1700 and 2000 is bad let us go back that is not acceptable to conservatives we believe in continuity of tradition we believe in a continuation between what our ancestors give us and what we give to our descendants burke talks about this continuing covenant between ancestors and descendants as a student um... I have gone through the unbiased history teaching, uh, biased history teaching in a school. So, uh, what I've learned in our history is just of the Mughals and the Delhi uh, Sultanate. So, uh, like the the history which I uh, like, we are taught in a school is only to fetch marks. So, how uh, how can we teach the real history and the Indian history from an Indian perspective so that uh, we children can de uh, develop pride? spirit and respect towards our ancestors and not blame them for being uh, in such a state now the real issue is this we are not going to teach history in order for you to get pride what we are saying is that there are lots of things in our traditions which are worthy of being proud of some which are not so worthy of being proud of we are not nobody is saying everything in our tradition is good not even disraeli said that you know certainly Rajagopalachari didn't say that. Rajagopalachari made a brilliant speech, by the way, when he came to SNDT University, talking about the need for inter-caste marriage. So he was not uh, simple-minded uh, conservatives, although he translated, uh, wrote uh, Mahabharata in English and Tamil. He wrote uh, Tam. Uh, he, he wrote Ramayana. He wrote Tiru. He translated the Tirukkural. So he, 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 was, he was an extraordinary intellectual, but he had this balance. now this is where i would start i think we need to develop and maybe you know sarayu or somebody can take the initiative develop a list of alternate texts by the way i don't think amar chitrakatha is bad huh? by and large i like pai and i like the way he has presented indian culture myth and history 
Uh, Amarchitra Katha actually content analysis, if you do, is fairly reasonably good. But we need to develop an alternate reading list outside our history textbooks. And maybe the good place to start with is Rajagopalachari. Certainly Jadunath Sarkar. Certainly Radha Kumud Mukherjee. So for Southern India, certainly Nilkanta Shastri. Certainly Parasnes and Sardesai. For Manohar Malgunkar, who is a Swatantra Party leader, is a very good writer of Marathi history. In fact, his book, Seahawk, uh, is an outstanding account of Kanoji Angre and the Maratha naval. I wrote somewhere that if the Maharashtra government is very serious about uh, teaching Maratha history properly, there are three books they should encourage. One is Dennis Kincaid's Grand Rebel. He was an English, he was a Scotsman. Dennis Kincaid, brilliant fellow. He lived in the 30s. He wrote uh, Grand Rebel about Shivaji. One is uh, 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 Manohar Malgonkar's uh, Seahawk about Karnoji Angre. And one is uh, uh, Gangadhar Gadgil's Praram about Bombay and the, uh, and the Bombay Renaissance of the early 19th century. So I think uh, maybe Sarayu or somebody can take this as an initiative to develop a list of alternate reading material which will give balance. Because I think that is very important. Frankly, you know, some of Ambedkar's writings are brilliant. He was a conservative. He was, a, he was also a radical in some respects. I'm not denying that. That's why I said Ambedkar and Gandhi, nobody should try to play. You know, we should leave that argument away. But there's aspects of his writing that we should read. And I think aspects of Jawaharlal Nehru's writings that we should read. So I think there is this uh, need to develop an alternate reading list, particularly against the stupid NCERT textbooks that we have. So I think, Saryu, you, we should encourage the foundation to do it. Yes, Jerry, we actually started something called uh, ICHSR, very nice sounding name, Indian uh, Council for Historical and Sociological Research. I have a small fund allocated for that, and there are some historians and some PhDs who are working with NCRT. Former NCRT people are all sort of teaming up together to do this. Just, As you do this, develop this alternate reading list yeah. and send it to parents. These are not very expensive books. Praram costs some 60, 80 rupees. Seahawk is probably out of print. It will come back into print. Jaiko or somebody prints it. Uh, uh, Grand Rebel has been reprinted. Paperback is available. So the parents can go for two, three thousand rupees. They can buy uh, in each part of India. Uh, a set of books that they can... And again, I want to come back. Amar Chitra Katha is not to be underestimated. It is pretty good. Mm. Ask your research people to do a content analysis of Amar Chitra Katha. 